0: If you have your Bible with you, how about if you open it up to Hebrews chapter 10? It was probably when I was um, 30 years old. I was driving down a highway in Arizona. Had a guy riding in the car with me. Um, who served on staff with me at at Youth Haven. He was a few years older than me. And we were having kind of a just theological banter, a little bit of questions back and forth. And um, he threw a question at me I didn't see coming. And I still um, have this question fly through my head today. I think you'll probably wrestle with it as well. He said to me, When did Jesus become real to you? And I didn't respond very well. I didn't, I didn't answer the question very well in, in the moment. I, I said, do you mean like when did I become a believer? I, I was like 14. He said, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. He said, when did Jesus become real to you? And I didn't know what to do with that. I, I saw it as a very insightful question. And I wrestled with it over the years. And we talked more and more about it um, during that period of time. And I came to the conclusion that there isn't a specific moment when Jesus becomes real to you. It's a progressive thing. Over a period of time, when you really begin to understand what He did for you, I think it's going to become much more real to you this morning as you work through this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. And so I just kind of turn the question back to you. Has Jesus become real to you? And I'm not talking about the moment in which if you decided to follow Christ that you decided to follow Christ. But has He become real to you that you understand what He's actually done for you? And as a result of studying Hebrews, are you grasping more of the true Jesus and who He really is? I'm going to take you back to week one. That's 19 weeks ago, by the way. This is our 19th week in the study of Hebrews, and I'm going to take you back there just momentarily to set up where we're going. And I think this concept of Jesus becoming more real to you will be evident. Let me pray with you first before we do that, and then we'll step back to week one. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that we cannot do what we're about to do apart from you without the guidance of your Holy Spirit and the teaching of your Holy Spirit. So Father, I would ask where my words fall short and and where our concentration falls short, that you would make up the difference, that you would keep us focused, that you would make our thoughts more complete, and that where we lack, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight father we would ask for your word to come alive for us right now in jesus name amen when we started out in hebrews um, i think it was in the month of february i I told you that that the writer of hebrews got to the point right away in the first three verses he let us know that jesus is exceedingly better infinitely more superior to anything or anyone and so we called the study jesus is better for that very reason and I told you to watch for three very specific words. Uh, the words uh, better, for sure, is one of them. Uh, the word perfect and the word eternal. Here's an example of the word better. Uh, Christ, Hebrews 1, 4, is better than the angels. Here's an example of Jesus being more perfect. And this comes from Hebrews 10:14. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. We're going to get into that today. This concept of you being sanctified. It means perfect standing before God. And here's the other one, eternal and this comes from hebrews 5 9 jesus is the author of eternal salvation so if you take all three of those words and put them together in one sentence this is kind of Mark's summary for the book of hebrews you're going to discover this jesus is better because he's given us a perfect standing before god and therefore we get eternal life that's really the summation of the book of hebrews now we left off two weeks ago Um, with this concept of jesus purifying your conscience giving you a pure mind even when you don't feel like you have a pure conscience we're told according to scripture that he's done that so just how crucial is that that we have a pure conscience the concept of having a pure conscience is not as real to people as what it really should be here's why no one needs to tell you when you have guilt on your mind, right? Yeah, I mean, it's there. You don't need someone to point it out to you. You feel the guilt deep inside. So no one needs to tell us when we have guilt. It lives with us. It moves in and it takes up residence. It's like a bad tooth. It's just constantly throbbing and pressing against you. So this concept of having a purified conscience is really crucial Well, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, as you're going to see, brings up this word of consciousness again. We refer to it in chapter 9. He brings it out in chapter 10, this concept of our conscience and what it does to us. So this word that uh, tells us that we have this consciousness of sin, a Greek word not trying to teach you the Greek language, but it's sundesis. And I'm putting it up on the screen so you see the definition behind it because it's going to come up time and time again throughout these verses that we're looking at this morning. This consciousness of sin. Question for you this morning, self-evaluation. Do you come into the service this morning with a sense of guilt, with a consciousness of your past wrongs? Or do you come into church services with a sense of release? Personally, I believe we need to talk about the release a little bit more often. And so I'm going to celebrate with you this concept, this understanding of this release that you have in Jesus. Most people, I'm aware, have the Peter syndrome. And by that I mean this. You remember the time when Peter was fishing in the boat? He'd not met Jesus before. Jesus shows up on the shore. The guys have been out fishing all night long. And they see this lone figure in the early morning light standing on the shore. And Jesus shouts out to them, Hey, how's the fishing? And Peter responds back, We've gone all night long. We haven't caught a thing. Jesus responds back to them, Try the other side. Now, these guys are professional fishermen. They've been out all night long. Of course they've tried the other side of the boat. But to appease Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus, but they go ahead and do it. And they say, okay, very well. They pick up the nets, and they throw it on the other side of the boat. They begin to bring the nets in, and the nets start breaking because there's so many fish in the nets. Do you remember what Peter did in that moment? In that moment, he collapsed. and He said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Why? Because he's in the presence of God. He knew there was something extraordinary about being in Jesus' presence. And the first thing he could do is recognize his guilt. And so he said to Jesus, just depart from me because I'm covered in my sin. I think that's the way a lot of people come into church and come in with that Peter syndrome on them, with that sense of their guilt. Now, I'm not suggesting that having a sense of your past Having an awareness of it is wrong. It, it's a good thing to keep you in proper perspective, and for myself as well, in terms of who we are before Jesus. But when we wear it to the degree that it chains us down, it keeps us from moving forward in our walk with Christ. See, my Bible says the same thing that your Bible says this morning it says you're worthy. It says you're worthy before the King. And you need to be reminded of that. That's what chapter 10 is all about, that's what sets Christianity apart. All other world religions cause people to wear their shame to the degree that they try and work their way before God, that God would receive them. But Christianity sets itself apart because God accepts us as we are. So let me show you verse 14 just because it's the climax of where we're headed before we get to it. It says this in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Today, you're going to personally know that you have perfect standing before the Father. So let's get into this. Verses 1 through 4 are kind of a setup to where we're going. Let's move through that first. Verse 1 says this, For the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And who wants that? Who wants to be constantly reminded year by year of your sin? That's what he's saying the Old Testament system did. Another year, another lamb, another sacrifice. I told you two weeks ago, in one day, they, they slaughtered 240,000 lambs in the Day of Atonement. Just in one day in the year, let alone all the other sacrifices. What's going on there? It's this constant reminder that the wages of sin is death because death is going on all day long. And every time they see the sacrificial system, it's the reminder of all this sin that they've got on them. So that's why he says in, in verse 1 the law is just a shadow. Um, in the Greek language, there's two words for shadow. Uh, on a bright sunny day, you're outside, different than today. Uh, it was really brilliant sunlight. You could put your hand out and see your fingers wiggle. As a matter of fact, in this bright spotlight on the floor of the stage, I can see my fingers, the fine definition. There's one word for shadow of that in the Greek language, but then there's the other word, the word skia, and it's the word that's used here, and it means blurry. Like on a cloudy day, if there's sunlight coming through at all, it's just kind of fuzzy on the ground of your shadow. That's the word that's used here. It's just a dull shadow. He's saying the law is just a a dull shadow. It's not a crisp, clear projection. It's just something dull. It's unsubstantial. See, the law was only a rough outline. Why? Because it can never make perfect those who draw near. That's what verse 1 says. Can you imagine getting this letter from this writer who's saying to you literally, your system of knowing God doesn't work? The way you're trying to get to God, it's not happening for you. Try telling that to people today. Say that to a Muslim. Say that to a Buddhist. Say that to a Hindu. Saying your system of getting to God doesn't work. It's not going to do it. Here's four things that I know that people want when they want to encounter God. Very specifically, people want peace. That's why they go to God. People want a pure conscience. That's why they go to God. People want access to God. People want forgiveness. His point is, under the Old Testament system, those four things, you can't get them. They couldn't get peace. They couldn't get a pure conscience. No access to God, as we've been seeing. They couldn't go in the Holy of Holies. People want forgiveness? No forgiveness. They got the sacrificial system, which covered over, but it didn't remove. So that's why he says in verse 1, there's good things to come. The law is just a shadow of the good things to come. What's the good thing? It's Jesus, because Jesus brings forgiveness. Jesus brings peace. He brings a clear conscience. He brings access to God. So that's why Colossians 2.17 says this, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, that's found in Christ. All the sacrifices could never make perfect those who wanted to draw near. They'd never save. No matter how many sacrifices, they'd fail. Matter of fact, he makes a brilliant point when he says the very repetition of these people trying to do this system of works where they keep coming and trying to please God, the very repetition of that proves that nothing was accomplished. In verse two, he says, if they had been cleansed, would they no longer have the consciousness of sins? But what he's saying is we're conscious of our sins. We're wearing it. We're very, very conscious of our sins. Well, what is this consciousness issue, this Sundasis? It has to do with this awareness of wrong. If I could put guilt in a definition, it's just very aware of the guilt, of the, of, the, of the degree of the wrong in our life to the point that it produces anxiety. When you really wear guilt for something that you've done, it makes you so uncomfortable. Now, This is one thing that evolution cannot explain about the human body. Where does guilt come from? How did we evolve that? Well, you can't explain that. It's something that God wired into our fiber. It's built right into the human system. And it acts on our minds like pain acts on our body. See, guilt responds to the moral injury in the same way that pain in the body responds to physical injury. They're both warning systems. It's like the flags on the dashboard going off saying, wait, something is wrong here. That, that guilt is a good thing because it keeps us aware of when we're doing something wrong. Now, let's think in terms of the system of works that the people in the Old Testament lived under. Under works, they were never free, never free of the anxiety, always aware of their guilt. For you and I, it's a wonderful thing to know that we're, there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. It's wonderful to know that we recognize our sins are forgiven. But for the people of the Old Testament system and people today who live under a system of works, there was no freedom whatsoever from their guilt. Let me show you Psalm 51 on the screen and see what David was living with. Remember, this is the guy who we're told is the man after God's own heart. What did he say? My sin is ever before me. It's never going away. He was constantly aware, I just can't erase it. This is the man after God's own heart who's never free from guilt. Now he's gonna take it a step further in verse four when he starts talking about the sin issue. Verse four says this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now I'm certain most of you in this room today being New Testament believers in Jesus Christ or if you took a sampling around the world of New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, most followers of Jesus would agree with this verse and would say, Yeah, there's no use. I mean, the blood of bulls and goats, what are that going to do for my sin? And we're very cognizant of the truth of that statement. But equally as true is the remarkable capacity that we have as believers in Jesus to live as though we've never really been forgiven and carry this weight with us all the time, living as though we're buried under by our past and our present. My Bible says there's victory in Jesus. You agree with that? I tried to get Michael to play that song last night. He'd never heard of it before. So you need to pray for him, okay? <laughs> See, calling you out, buddy. Buy him a hymnal, okay? Find the, find the story, victory in Jesus. My, I was studying this this week and I just came, my mind just came to that song. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. The, the, the whole story is right in there. There's victory in Jesus. Now, I guarantee you if you left here right now and you went out on the streets and you started doing a, a sampling of people and saying, "What do you believe mankind's greatest problem is?" You'd get such a variety of answers. You'd have, you'd have individuals saying, oh, "Crisis in the middle of the East, the, the wars. In the Middle East, that, that's mankind's greatest problem. Or world dictators. Some would say Congress. <laughs> some would say oil prices. So, some would say the climate, what's going on with water quality. Here's mankind's greatest problem. According to God's Word, mankind's greatest problem is sin. That, that's the truth of God's Word. By nature, we are sinners, and by choice, we prove our nature is sinful. We sin because we're sinners. So here's a truth most people don't want to hear. No matter what religion, if it cannot deal with sin, it's of no value. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying the Old Testament system has no way of reaching inside someone and changing them eternal internally. It just can't do it. That's why he said it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, just one more detail before we move forward on verse 4. When it says impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, this is a really, really strong word in the Greek language. It's saying absolutely there's no way forward through the blood of animals. And here's why I want to emphasize that. Because of the words take away that come afterwards. When he says it's impossible to take away, he's using the exact same word structure that was used of Peter again but this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night that Jesus is arrested, the soldiers come into the garden. They want to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? His instincts tell him, pull out a sword. Pulls out a sword, and whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant. He's going for the guy's head, but he misses. He's a fisherman after all. The word take away is the exact same word that's used of Peter in the garden where he hacked off the guy's ear. The the writer is saying there is no way of moving forward. You can't hack off sin out of your life through the blood of bulls and goats. What mankind needs is to have their sin hacked off and removed so it's no longer a factor. And so what we're told here is that sin is a factor. And so what we need is to have it hacked off and removed from our life. So let's go forward to verse 5 with all that in mind because now it starts talking about the solution in Jesus. Verse 5, Therefore, when He comes, who's the He, church? Jesus, that's right, Christ. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, this is a really important point for you to hear before we move forward. God instituted the sacrificial system. We know that. But man corrupted it. Man turned it into something that became a system of incantations. Individuals actually grew to the point where they believed, hey, you just say the right words, you offer the right animal, put the coin in the slot, pull the lever, and out comes forgiveness. And, and, and God will just look over that. And they totally devoided, separated themselves of, of, of the act of faith the relationship with God. They just went through a system of works, believing that that was what was going to do it for them. And so we we see in the Old Testament that God actually got to the point where he was just disgusted with this action of these individuals going through the sacrificial system. That's why you see the prophet Samuel saying to King Saul, "Hey Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Just stop. If you're going to really follow God, you're going to obey him do that and then be part of the sacrificial system but but just don't go through the hoops L- let me show you god's mindset regarding this it's a little bit longer passage from isaiah but you need to see god's mind and god's heart regarding what was going on with these individuals isaiah 1:11. this is god speaking what are your multiplied sacrifices to me says the lord I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. What happens when you arrive at that point? When the God who said to Moses on Mount Sinai, I am forgiving, long-suffering, to a thousand generations, I'll show my mercy. What happens when you reach the point where the God of wonders says enough? I've had enough, it's over. I'm not going to endure this any longer. They pushed God right to the breaking point. God said, fine, done with you. That is exactly what was going on prior to the arrival of Jesus. This system had gone on and on and on and on and on. God finally said, I'm fed up with it. So that's why we see in verse six, in verse five, Jesus talking about his body. Here he says in verse six, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 8, After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, in parentheses, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the book of Psalms, chapter 40. See, These words are seen as coming from Jesus. What he's doing is giving the reason for the incarnation, the very reason that we have Christmas. Jesus is saying, I have come, verses 7 and 9. Twice, I have come. Why, church? To do your will. I have come to do your will. God the Father, God the Son agreed in in time way before time that Jesus, God the Son, would become Jesus. He says, so there's a body prepared for me. You see that in verse 5? A body has been prepared for me that I would come to do your will. He's just acknowledging at this point Jesus stood on the edge of heaven literally saying, "This, this is the moment, the incarnation. This is what he's referring to here. He's acknowledging the taking on of human form so that his own body will become the sacrifice. Now, verses 7 and 9 said, I've come to do your will. So that will is really important when we get to verse 10 because this is affecting us now. Verse 10 says this, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, by that will... By that decision to take on human form, God made you holy. He sanctifies you. And the system of works had no way of making a man holy. The the word sanctified is the word hagiadzo, A big Greek word, but it's literally the word that we get the word in English, saint from. Did you ever think of yourself as a saint I know most people tend to think of individuals with their names carved in stone on the sides of a building, right? And depending on how you grew up or what faith you grew up in, this might be really, really hard for you to digest. That I might say, St. Wendy, St. Joe, St. David, St. Jim, St. Jerry. I mean, you just put your name in there. God says... You are hagiadzo, and that might be really hard for you to hear, especially when you think in terms of the Catholic Church going through great hoops to name somebody after they're dead a saint and giving them what they call sainthood status. Scripture literally says, you are hagiadzo, you are holy to God. You have been set apart. Anybody here feel holy this morning? See, that's the problem. We wear our past mistakes, and we're so aware of our failures. We feel anything but holy. And so coming into church is a is a real chore in terms of thinking of ourselves as being worthy to be in God's presence. It's the Peter syndrome. But we understand biblically, a saint is a person whom God has set apart. That's you. You can put your name, saint, whatever, into the blank. God sees you that way, and you have been made permanently Holy. See, God's objective for you, this 1 Peter 1:16. Many people struggle with this verse. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And people come across that verse and think, Man, how can I be holy like God? See, it's not about you, it's not about what you did. God made you holy through the work of Jesus Christ. You have been sanctified. Now, this is really powerful when you get verse 10 down. In one action, according to verse 10, in one moment, permanent sanctification for everyone who trusts Jesus because of what he did on the cross. He sanctified you. He made you holy. So what we're talking about here theologically, if you're looking for a theological term, it's called positional standing. Your positional standing before God. And this position in Jesus will not be modified one iota throughout eternity, regardless of the mistakes that you make between now and when you enter into eternity. It will not change because God sees you this way through what Jesus did. Here's our struggle. I struggle with it. Our practical holiness, the things that we do throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of the week, cause us to not see ourselves hagias Holy. Matter of fact, most people put on a holiness hat on Sunday morning. They think, I'm, I'm headed to church. Some people even put the hat on out in the parking lot, depending on what took place in the car on the way to church, and, and struggle with the thought of, oh, I'm going in and sitting with all these other believers who are so much more holy than I am. And, and That's not the case. We, we struggle with seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. Here is God's will for you. God's will is that your practice throughout the week, your practical day-in and day-out living would match your position, that your practice would match your position, that we would become in person who we are in Christ already. We're, we're told in Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them all aside. And he starts listing off all these things that people commonly do. Say, Just put them away, out of your life. This is God's will for you. But I want you to hear this regardless of how practically holy you may or may not be. Your standing, who you are in Jesus, makes you permanently holy to God if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. And that is a distinctive doctrine of Christianity. It's unique in all the world that God sees us this way. We don't have to earn it. Let's move forward, coming into the home stretch here now. Verse 11 says this Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. There's two verses in complete contrast here. Verse 11, contrast verse 12. you got many priests versus one priest. you got continual standing versus the sitting down. you got the repeated offerings versus the one for all. He offered one sacrifice for all, and then he sat down. And it's so complete and so powerful that every enemy of the cross is crushed. And you know there's enemies of the cross, right? There are enemies of Jesus. Who's the greatest enemy, church? Satan, we're told according to scripture that he even crushed Satan. Satan was crushed as a result of what Jesus did. So all the sacrifices of the Old Testament system, all those years of lambs being killed could never eliminate Satan and had absolutely no effect on him, nor on the demons. But at the cross, Jesus conquered all. All the enemies, he put them under his feet and is waiting for a period of time when they become his footstool. Matter of fact, this is what Scripture says, Hebrews 2.14. He conquered him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Even the demons, look at this one, Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. All those who through all the ages opposed God are defeated, and then verse thirteen comes along, and it says he's waiting. And literally, it, it says waiting from that time onward. It's it's my experience that senior saints, those who are like sixty plus, maybe you'd say seventy plus, depending on your age, senior saints are wondering what's he waiting for. I just would love to see him come back in my lifetime. Younger saints, not so much. Got their whole life ahead of them. We all struggle with this issue of guilt and this issue of our conscience and this constant pressing of sin on us. Senior saints are so much more aware of that, that they're just looking for the release from this earth and from this struggle. They just want to move on. Are you aware that our government actually even has a conscience fund Because they're so aware, the United States government is so aware that people struggle with this issue of their guilt pressing down on them. The IRS manages three distinct funds. One of them is called the Conscience Fund. It was started in 1811. People started sending money into the government because of ways that they had cheated the government. The the very first deposit that was made was $5. In 1940, somebody sent in $40,000 because they had cheated on their taxes and they, they made installments over a period of time. I just read about this guy this, this last week. I want to share with you his note. It's pretty interesting. This guy wrote a note into the IRS, and, and it says this. Um, the sincerity of some donor's repentance can be uncertain. As demonstrated by a letter received reading this way, Dear Internal Revenue Service, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. (laughs) See, even the government recognizes this issue of guilt is real. Our conscience pressing down on us. So senior saints would say, what's he waiting for? I just want him to come. Younger saints, not so much. Well, we're told specifically he's waiting from that time onward in verse 13. How long? Until his enemies be made his footstool. In other words, until they acknowledge and bow at the feet of Jesus. We're told that's going to happen. Philippians 2.10 At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That means Satan. Lucifer will bow the knee one day. All the demons will bow the knee. People in hell in heaven and on earth, according to that verse, Philippians 2:10 and 11, will bow. Now here comes the Trump verse. This is, this is the climax of the passage. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I'm not even going to break that down. Just know that, 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 that that's telling you you are totally secure because you are justified. Because of what Jesus did in sanctifying you, you are totally secure. Move on with me to verse 15. Because he's perfected us, he did something very specific. It says in verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, and I will write them, he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, I know this is kind of obvious, but I'm just going to ask it just to make sure you understand it. Who's he talking about there? Who are the those whose sins he will remember no more? Us. I know you're hesitant to say it, but it's you. It's me. That's who he's talking about. God said, I'm going to put my laws on their heart and on their mind, and the result is I'm going to forget their sins when they trust in my son. See, here's the deal. It's an action on God's part, which leads to an action on man's part, which leads to an action on God's part. God made the offer. We accept the offer. God responds by sanctifying us. And this goes straight to the very last verse, the issue of forgiveness. And that's where the real interest lies because people really want to know. Like I said, four things. Do I have peace with God? Do I have access to God? Do I have forgiveness? Here it is, verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no more need there's no more need for any more offerings because it's been done. So if you're here this morning and you find yourself feeling unworthy, you, you got the Peter syndrome thing going on. I, I'm just covered with sin. It, just know this first of all, it's real. Many people struggle with that. I want to remind you, it keeps in perspective our utter nothingness before Jesus. Jesus. But it's a good thing to keep in balance the fact that sin has caused you to need a savior. It's unbelievers who deny there's any sin in their life whatsoever. According to what scripture says, 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. It's not that a Christian is no longer conscience of their past or of the present sin. No one should be more aware of it than us. But our conscience cannot chain us down, church to the degree that we stop growing in Christ and moving forward and letting Him use us to advance His kingdom. So challenge for you. If Jesus has met you here today, if as a result of what you've heard and read yourself, you came to one of two conclusions, either you're a sinner in need of a Savior and you've never dealt with that before, tremendous that you've heard from God in that way, And that you need to deal with that today. But more often than not, I know that in New Hope services, I'm talking to a lot of believers. If Jesus has met you here today, and and through that activity of the Holy Spirit, He's shown you that you really need to make your past your past, because God has done that. I, I really challenge you to recognize, first of all, that's a good thing, that you've encountered God. It's not a bad thing. But in this moment, you've got to put your stake in the ground and leave here today knowing that he can and he has perfected you for all time. The the work of the sacrifice is done. Forgiveness has already been provided for you. How can you personally know that you've received that? Read Hebrews chapter 10 when you leave here today and then read it again and then read it again and then read it again. As long as it takes to get it down in your mind to know that Jesus is real. Jesus becomes real in the moment that you grasp that your past is your past. And he sees you as holy, church. It's a good place to stand, right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. It's reliable, it is undeniable. We are witnesses of it this morning. I pray for those who have gathered in the auditorium right in this moment, that as they go out, not only will they receive your blessing for having been here, and they will see the evidence of your hand in their life this week, but also, Father, that you would cause us to simultaneously walk boldly and humbly Father, that we would walk humbly because of the great price we recognize that was paid for us, but that we would walk boldly knowing that you see us as holy, that you have designed us for a purpose, and you intend to use us for your kingdom if we will just not let our past weigh us down. Father, we just surrender this to you right now. In this moment, I pray on behalf of all these individuals asking that you help us put our past in our past and move forward in the confidence of knowing that Jesus provided the final sacrifice. It's in his great name that we pray. Amen.